A lot of people are saying that right now we're in the second golden age of AI. Welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. Uh, my name is Moritz Stefana and I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. And I am Enrico Bertini and I am a professor at NYU in New York where I do research in data visualization. And on this podcast, uh, together we talk about data visualization, data analysis, and generally the role data plays in our lives. And usually we do that together with a guest we invite on the show. And today we have Gene Kogan to talk about the use of machine learning in art. Hey, Gene, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me. So can you briefly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your backgrounds, interests, and, and all the rest? Uh, so my name is Gene. Uh, I've been artist and a programmer. Um, I'm kind of like, uh, I mean, the cut and paste bio is I'm really broadly interested in generative art and generative systems, um, data visualization, and kind of like um, applications of uh, emerging technology, especially in computer science to, you know, creative and more expressive things. So um, that's, tip, uh, that's a lot of machine learning and AI. Um, and more recently, kind of decentralization technology, which has been an interest of mine. Um, and before that, a lot of, you know, computer vision, um, you know, fabrication, lots of, I was kind of been scatterbrained for a long time. <laughs> yeah, we, we wanted to cover machine learning and uh, all the ramifications in, in the arts and visualization for a long time. So we're very happy to have you on the show. Finally, someone who can speak, uh, uh about what is going on there, <laughs> right? So w what is going on? It's, it's, it's been crazy <laughs> lately. Maybe we can start a little bit from the development of the field, right? So there's been the early um, AI scene in the 60s, then 80s, ups and downs. And now we are, yeah, we are in the deep learning craze. So what's what's going on? Um, well, a lot of people are saying that right now we're kind of in the like second golden age of AI. Yeah. Because the, the first mm. one was in the late 50s and 60s when... Um, you know, when AI first became something that was, um, well, that's kind of when the field was invented, but, but, you know, that was also the first age in which people became very excited about it. So in the late fifties is kind of when we developed, you know, primitive, uh, but what were then the first neural networks for doing things like image, image recognition. And, um, you know, in the, in the, so, I mean, if you, if you know much about the sixties, you know, you know how that was the era of like sort of hyper utopian, you know, science fiction, <laughs> right? Like, I, you know, you guys ever watched mm. the Jetsons and things like that. <laughs> and, and a lot of that was really like, it said that that was a, a lot of that was a direct result of the excitement about AI because, uh, researchers really believed, you know, in the early sixties that, you know, we were going to be able to have human level intelligence by, um, even the 1970s at that time. Um, right. So there was just, a, you know, a lot of, so, so the research had kind of spilled over into, you know, more mainstream, you know, that was the early days of mass media. So there was just a lot of, um, a lot of public discussion about, you know, this idea of artificial intelligence. Um, and there was just a lot of, um, you know, hype and over promising, 
uh, overpromising just how you know revolutionary the technology we had at the time really was. And so what <laughs> happened was that through the 70s and 80s, there was kind of a big crash in terms of um, the interest, like especially from the public, the general public into uh, AI. And um, so it kind of just became relegated to back to what it was before, which was just an academic field. So, you know, there were still a lot of computer scientists and engineers who were really interested in taking the field and developing it. And this was also kind of when machine learning first became a, um, a field in its own right. So that's kind of like maybe the late, the early, early 80s or so. Um, and then most recently, kind of in, over the last, depending on when you start it, like, you know, five, 10 years, there's been a huge resurgence of interest in AI and a particular, uh, particularly a resurgence of interest in neural networks because of some um, really impressive and promising results that they've had in a number of tasks um, in the last few years. And so we're kind of in the middle of a big bubble of interest. Again, there's been a lot of investment. A lot of tech companies are getting more and more into it, especially the big ones. And that has also inspired it to cross over into other industries. So the creative industries, of course, um, are, have been following it, I think, you know, pretty closely over the last two years. And, um, and you're just seeing, yeah, now there's just a lot of adoption happening and applications being developed. And of course, there's always the science which is um, kind of in the background, trying to trying to advance the trying to advance the methodology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what would you say? What are the 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 fundamental things that are now available that were not doable or easily doable, let's say five years ago? Like, what are the new techniques that are now uh, coming into play? Well, um, the thing that kind of really started the, the the craze, I guess, was a lot of success in computer vision. So. If you were a computer vision researcher in the 1990s, a lot of things that we now take for granted to some degree, like, you know, classifying images or detecting objects inside of them were really, really hard. You know, they were not, weren't, especially like a semantic tasks. So we could do a lot of things like, uh, you know, tracking blobs in an image or segmenting in images and things like that. But there was no concept of intelligence about the content of the image. And um, over the last few years, computer vision has really been transformed a lot by, by you know, deep learning in particular in machine learning. And then now a lot of the uh, sort of deep learning technologies are being applied with a, with a great deal of success into other domains. So there's a lot more focus on audio and text now. Um, we, have, we have generative, you know, compared to five years ago, let, we can count the list of things that we can do now that we couldn't do before. Um, we have generative models for audio, so mm -hmm. generating audio that sounds like like it came from real life with machine learning. So that's a completely new mm -hmm. thing, and it maybe sounds like a specific yeah, person exactly that it right. can imitate people's voices. So that's exactly. that's new. Yeah. Um, we have um, you know like um, so a lot of applications of computer vision are totally new. So like things like medical diagnostics um, is not something that people were really thinking about um, you know five ten years ago. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, we have a lot of like exper more experimental technologies for language processing. Language processing is another natural language processing is another area that mm -hmm. has undergone a, a pretty significant shift. So now if you think to things like Cortana and Alexa and Siri, you know, question answer systems and things like that. I mean, they're still a little bit, they're still a little bit, you know, clunky, but, but they're way ahead of where they were before. 
mm-hmm. um, to the point that we're now, you know, seriously integrating them into into actual technologies that people use every day, you know, like cell phones and so on. Yeah. And generally also, of course, for like existing techniques, we have a totally different speed and scale now with cloud computing and crazy developments in, in graphics cards. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> that are now being built not for displays anymore, but to mine bitcoins and to run like <laughs> matrix operations. Yeah. And that's, that shouldn't be underrated either. Like that's kind of more the engineering innovations that yeah, have occurred right, rather right. than science ones. And, and they have also... Um, been really, really important because now if you think about how widespread the field is, you know, compared to the first golden age, the fact yeah. that people in other industries are actually using these techniques, mm-hmm. that's something that is very much, uh, very much a result of, you know, like accessible, uh, computation that's, that's, you know, and of course cloud computation and so on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, you have been very active in this field and you followed a lot of the work, like both the research, but also the creative applications of mm-hmm. machine learning and AI. Can you, can you talk us through some really interesting, like the, the projects you found most interesting or surprising applications of these technologies or just charming ones, <laughs> like some, some, some interesting work in this area? Some charming ones. Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Um, it's hard to know where to start, you know, like... Um, You know, I, I mean, I, I think you, you guys, of course, know Mario Klingemann. I follow his work a lot. Um, mm-hmm. He's been very active in the space, just making, like, mostly really weird, <laughs> like, a lot of really weird, visual, you know, images and videos, um, a lot of, you know, deep learning techniques to create, um, you know, basically his own kind of brand of, of, of work. So I really, he tries to teach computers to produce art, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. sort of his his angle there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of pretty cool um, projects that aim to kind of um, you know un- discover, let's say, like what data says about us. There's there's been interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is necessarily a creative application, although I I tend to. F- I, I think of it as a creative application, even though it wasn't really developed for artistic purposes, like on purpose. Um, but but there's a lot of this, um, you know, trying to fool neural networks. So there's kind mm-hmm. of a field of, of uh, machine learning that's emerging, um, which is kind of called adversarial training or adversarial neural networks. And the, the idea is to, it's kind of um, concerned with security of, of machine learning, of neural networks in particular. Um, so like, is it easy to fool a neural network in such a way that, um, that a human being wouldn't actually notice what the, um, you know, the interference that was, that was placed into, uh, like to, to be more concrete, um, you might look at an image of, um, of a kangaroo or something. And then mm-hmm. by simply sprinkling just a little bit of pixel noise in such a way onto the image that, um, a human can't even detect the difference. But then um, the neural network will say, well, that's a toaster oven, you know, or something like that. <laughs> and of course, it has huge implications to security because, you know, we're now talking about using um, these image classifier systems to do things like give you permission to access your own phone, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, the, the, you know, the, the intersection of Machine learning and cybersecurity is pretty large. Oh yeah, of course. Like, but then to to me, it's there's there's kind of like an artistry to that, you know, because mm-hmm. I think I think there's a uh, you know to have 
come up with that in the first place requires a little bit of, of, uh, of kind of intuition and creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that may not exactly answer your question. <laughs> I could uh, think about also like more ostensibly art, artistic projects that, that have come out in the last year. Um, so another, another pretty cool one that I should mention is, um, at David Ha, who's a resident at Google, Google Brain. Um, and he made a system called Sketch RNN, which, um, is a generative model of sketches, like doodles mm-hmm. that people draw. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, it's really neat because besides for just being able to draw, you know, just, it's not just that it's a machine drawing these objects, but it's also a machine that can kind of give us insights into, um, you know, insights into the way that ways that people draw. Um, so for example, you can get, you, you can observe the RNN in, um, you know, you can find the sort of like high level properties of different kinds of, uh, things that humans might draw. So like if humans draw dogs or something like that, um, you can get different, you can see what different kinds of dogs humans will draw. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are also interesting intercultural differences and so on. So there's, yeah, yeah there was a pretty a cool, really cool, like research. Yeah. Yeah. There was that, a few right things now. that, and that was kind of based on the quick draw data set that came out mm-hmm. that, that, that David was using. Exactly. And yeah, I know what you're talking about. There was, um, I can't remember, I can't recall who did this, but there was a, a project online that shows kind of, um, on the average, what people's sketches look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so like it shows, okay, what do people in this country draw, uh, cars like, you know, what do people in this country draw cars like, and you can kind of see qualitative differences. I think my favorite example of that was, um, it, they showed, um, how people in different countries draw fish. So if you're asked to draw a fish, you know, you'll draw a fish, right? And basically every country in the world, on average, the p- people draw the fish facing right. So like the tail is on the left mm-hmm. and then the fish's eyes and mouth are on the right, except for Japan and India. And, <laughs> and that's really bizarre, right? Like those two countries specifically, I don't know why, I, I don't know why if, if anyone ever figured out the answer for, uh, for <laughs> India, but for Japan, someone, um, this was on a Twitter conversation uh, I can't, I also don't, I can't recall who posted this, but someone mentioned that in Japan, traditionally fish are served facing left. So if ah, you're in a restaurant, nice. and yeah. so, you know, and so that's kind of neat because then through people's, it's like you're reaching into people's subconscious, you know, like what you, you know, people don't necessarily draw a fish because, you know, facing left because of that, or they don't, they don't know that's why it's, it just comes from their unconscious. And so this is like a visualization of people's unconsciousness. Um, so yeah, that was a pretty, pretty creative project from, from last year. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious what, to see what is going to happen in future years in this space, because I think the interplay between artificial intelligence and art is such a interesting space, right? Where so many things can, can happen. And, um, I'm particularly interested in this idea that as you interact with a machine learning system, the system may provide things to you that you don't expect and you may get inspiration out mm-hmm. of it, right? Mm-hmm. So I think a, a, a few years back, maybe it was a couple of years back, I remember there was this uh, painter, unfortunately, I don't remember his name and the name of his projects, but that was really fascinating. So I think he was taking um, pictures, he was interested in painting, 
then feeding these pictures to um, a neural network to basically transform the picture into a painting first, but then <laughs> just getting inspiration out of it to create his own painting. Right. <laughs> and um, yeah, I find it super fascinating and I, I'm sure there is so much more to explore there. I, I guess it's the same with music, right? So you feed your AI with some, some input and then create some notes and then you say, oh yeah, that's what I want to do. And then you keep going, <laughs> right? I don't know, this yeah. interplay between you and the machine is something new and very interesting. Yeah, um, definitely. Like, and that, that's definitely very inspiring to me. You know, I've always thought that like art can be a vehicle for understanding complicated concepts. And of course, like mm -hmm. machine learning is and AI is just so broadly applicable to, to the things that we do that there's kind of an urgency to, to get people to understand it better. Um, so, th so projects like that, you know, they, they have really lasting impact, I think. Um, and you know, for me, there's always kind of uh, a, a large incentive to to fold that into my artwork because I think, you know, people really would like to have a better grasp of of just understanding the technology and also being able to use it for their own purposes. And the best way to achieve that, I think, is to um, give them tools that let them be creative because you yeah. know creativity is like what you're doing when you don't have to do anything else. I think, you know, yeah. it's kind of the expression of one's will. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it looks to me that that's probably the, the biggest hurdle right now. Right. I mean, if an artist wants to play with, with, with a machine learning system, it's still pretty hard to do that. Right. So uh, unless you are able to do some extensive programming, and, um, and I think you're, you're also working on that, right? Yeah. Um, well, t I, I'll, yeah, I, I, that's definitely true. Um, although it's never been easier, like to get started than, yeah, than sure. it has now. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of things online that can give you an intuitive understanding of certain things about machine learning without being able to code. Um, so this, this project from, um, Google creative lab that, uh, my collaborator, uh, Andreas and Lassie, who uh, creative coding studio in Copenhagen in Stoy, they, they worked on something called Teachable Machines, um, which is this, mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw that, but it's basically a, an online browser-based application that lets you train an image classifier mm -hmm. on different objects that you put in front of the camera, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. it uses that to trigger audio samples. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, so that's, that's a nice tool that you can actually, you know, you can train yourself to you know work with whatever images that you want and you know it's all it's kind of there ready for you and then of course a lot of the tools are open source so if you do have some ability to grab stuff in github and, and start modifying it you can really actually get, get pretty far and for my own work yet yeah, i've been putting a lot of um, educational materials online um, and also just like downloadable programs that you can modify the source code for if you wish that that people um, especially people in like interaction design um, and, you know, various sort of new media programs have been using, you know, as uh, for, for projects and, you know, just kind of to help themselves understand. Um, and yet, and that's not the only one, of course, there's, there's tons of you know, materials like that that are available right now. It's still not super easy, you know, like, of course, it requires, uh, you know, digging, digging in and, you know, doing some work to get into it. But but there's, it's definitely way more accessible than, than ever before. 
Yeah. And of course, with online classes and things like that, there's there's a lot yeah. of depth to it as well. So you can really make a long term, um, you know, kind of if you if you create a long term initiative to get into it, you, you won't run out of materials. There's a, there's a lot out there. Yeah, yeah. And you have a site up called ml4a.github.io, and uh, the guides there are fantastic. I think so. If you know mm -hmm. just a little bit of Python, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you're all set to really try out a few of the the most interesting techniques, and, and mm -hmm. the guides are really helpful. And yeah, it's I, I was surprised that it's often just a couple of lines of codes, uh, <laughs> yeah. and you see something working. I mean, it, it's getting harder, yeah. like to debug or to, yeah. like, you know, actually make it work really well. But then you need to sort of get into the the nitty gritty. But to to start playing, I think, as you say, has never been easier. And um, yeah, so mm -hmm. we'll definitely post the link to your guides there. And you're also working on a book, which is mm -hmm. hard, I think, because the field is moving faster than people can type. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That that's kind of a labor of love. For for me that's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah that's part of the ml4a material so ml4a stands mm -hmm. for a machine learning for artists which is just the name of a course that i taught at um at nyu itp um two years ago which was when i first began to put materials for machine learning uh, online and at, at the at first that that class was uh, at first the ml4a github.io the the website you mentioned was mm -hmm just meant to be a place to keep my notes for that class. But then the scope of it kind of expanded. I started doing workshops and I started kind of compiling more and more materials onto it. And so I thought it would be over within a few months, but then it just kind of became this ongoing project, which I'm still doing now. And the book is, um, as I, as I call it, I, I usually <laughs> use a quotation. I put quotation marks in the air with my hands when I, when yeah. I call it a book, because it's kind of like, it's, it's something of, um, it's somewhere between book and sort of interactive guide, let's say. Um, mm. And at least half of it is still unfinished. And, and I don't know if it ever will be finished. It's just kind of like I'm constantly growing it and trying to make it more and more cohesive. Right. And um, there's a, a, the core of it is, is basically up and done. And that's meant to, to give people a gentle introduction to the art and science and the culture of... Um, of machine learning and, and kind of try to make it as accessible as possible to use a lot of visualization instead of equations to try to transmit complex concepts. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I've been writing it now for two years and there's no end in sight. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, but, yeah. but it's, it's kind of, I'm already using it. So it's kind of, it, it's not really like a book where, you know, you sit down and write and write, write, it's in secret. And then, you know, you launch it one day. It's just kind of, mm -hmm. I'm constantly adding to it as I go. And it's a public resource. So people actually do use them. Like I use them for my workshops. Right. Um, so it's just, yeah, it, there's no really the like, way. yeah, 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 yeah working in the oh, open. I've gotten a lot of, I've gotten also a lot of, um, help on it. Mm -hmm. Um, so actually most recently there's a bunch of translations now, which is ah, really, fantastic. really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, it's really great to have these in, in just non, non-English. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I've had, I've been very fortunate to get some, some great volunteers to, to kind of just write, um, in a different language. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, but there's, there's a lot of work to do. That's for mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. So one thing I wanted to ask you is focusing more on the data visualization space. Um, what is the, 
what is the role of machine learning there or the role of visualization for machine learning? I think it goes both ways, right? So you can do great things for visualization using machine learning and you can use visualization to better understand machine learning as well. So what's your take on that? Well, a big part of machine learning is data visualization. So if you look at things like um, generative models and, and, sure. even, and even something like DeepDream, you know, which is kind of usually approached from, you know, like when we think of DeepDream, we just think of like, this is making weird psychedelic images or whatever. But the whole purpose of it, the reason why it was developed was for data visualization. So like one thing that people, want, scientists especially, want to be able to um, understand what what is happening inside of these machine learning models, because a lot of them are, of course, like very large and kind of opaque. So there's just a lot of like a lot of math going on inside there. And it doesn't necessarily um, it's not always easy to understand what's happening. So a lot of um, a lot of times you might use something like deep. So the whole purpose of deep dream is to visualize what um, a particular neuron inside of a, a neural network or a layer what um, kinds of image images is it learning? Is it learning to um, to recognize? And then generative models, of course, are used for creating to to, to visualize um, uh, to to visualize different image classes. So if you have a generative model that is trained over, um, let's say, ImageNet, you know, you can use it to produce. That's a data set of of images of you know lots and lots of photographs of different kinds of things that you find in the web. And then you can use the generative model to, um, quote unquote, hallucinate um, or synthesize um, different exemplars of, of all those classes. And that's kind of a really useful thing because it helps us understand what the, the networks are learning. And then more uh, and then data visualization as a field itself can help us understand machine learning. Um, you know, you can use it to communicate how machine learning works, of course, because it is yeah. a, um, you know, a data intensive field. So you can use data visualization to understand the properties of the data. Um, mm-hmm. and you can use data visualization to visualize the insides of neural networks. Um, and it just kind of helps people digest, you know, really large or complicated or otherwise arcane concepts. Um, so they're, they're very much interlinked in that way. Um, and then, you know, you have techniques like, you know, TSNI, which are maybe technically not machine learning, but, but like very much, um, kind of adjacent to, uh, machine learning. And that is a, you know, data visualization technique. TSNI is used for, um, for listeners who aren't aware that TSNI is used for, for, uh, finding an optimal 2D or 3D, uh, layout of high dimensional data. So imagine you have, you know, a thousand images. Um, you can use TSNI to find, to plot them on a 2D grid or just a 2D, um, like a large canvas where similar images are grouped next to each other. And by similar, I mean, they have similar content. So if you have a whole bunch of animals or something, images of animals, it'll put all the cows, you know, together into one cluster and they'll put dogs into another cluster and so on. And that can be really useful if you're trying to understand, um, you know, a large media uh, data set um, or just try to, 
see what what you have you know uh, which is otherwise difficult mm. to sort or organize it's, it's really great for like exploring large archives or like content mm -hmm. collections and there's also an audio version i know kyle mcdonald worked on something like this and you also have mm -hmm. a demo on your site how to organize a lot of sounds in a space right yeah. and just mm -hmm, mm -hmm. explore uh this is the corner with the hi-hats here are the bass drums <laughs> and so, right you can use and, you, and can... you know it's and it's so hard like if you have just a thousand sound files to you know how how would you structure them but these maps mm -hmm, are like mm -hmm. immediately uh intuitive i think yeah yeah you can do it with images you can do it with sounds you can do it with text and you know anything mm -hmm. that can be represented as data and uh for the sound example you know that's I, I like to use that sometimes as uh, an example of what, what makes it useful. So, you know, imagine you're a musician and you have a large collection of samples from, uh, or like you're a field recorder or something or a Foley mm -hmm. artist mm -hmm. and you have tons and tons of samples and this can kind of help you uh, navigate through them much, much more, um, well, much, much better, right? Much easier. And um, I can imagine these kinds of features being inside of the Ableton Live of the future and so on. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Um, we'll have to wrap up soon. Uh, but before we uh, go, I'd like to like, ask like one last thing, mm -hmm. like zooming out a bit. Um, uh, as we mentioned, there's this super fast development now and everybody's massively excited and there's definitely this hype curve going on. Um, do you think it's justified or let's say more specifically in which fields is the hype justified and which Uh, things might neural networks not be that great at where we think like, oh, that should be easy. If they can sort images, they should also be able to do X or Y. And um, maybe it's much harder for, for this type of comp computation to get to grasp with other things that we would expect to be maybe easier even. Um, like from your experience, where do you think is the hype justified? Where, where is there actually a revolution going on? And in which other areas maybe it will turn out to be much harder to get actually interesting and useful stuff um, yeah. in the long run. Well, I, Do you have a hunch? Yeah, I, I just reminded <laughs> last week there was um, Justin Timberlake released a music video. Oh, nice. Which was at, which was at a deep learning conference. So you know you've like really reached peak hype when Justin Timberlake is releasing videos. And, and actually, um, even better, uh, two day, just two days ago, I think, um, Sundar Pichai, who's the CEO of Google, Mm -hmm. was quoted as saying something like, um, AI is more profound than fire, something <laughs> like that. So, of course, a lot of it is, you know, a lot of it is justified because there have been, you know, we and you know, I've written about this, so if people are interested in, in you know, more of the details, there have been a lot of really impressive results, like some of the ones that we've been talking about. Right. But yeah. definitely the hyperbole is probably not super, not super <laughs> helpful because... You know, of course, like it, it, hyperbole and hype is used to sell products usually. So, right. and yeah. so there's a lot of like, um, you know, machine learning is going to have a lot of really transformative applications, but it's going to have a lot of like really boring or disingenuous ones or outright fraudulent ones as well. So, mm -hmm. of course, like part of the hype bubble is is probably built on top of that. And um, you know, there's there's tons of You know, there's tons of dangers to machine learning that people should be aware of. And that's the, that's actually a big, one of the really big motivations for trying to teach it so widely, um, you know, outside of computer science and so on. Um, mm -hmm. and I guess the second part of your question is, you know, where, what to expect, like kind of like, do, will it become, you know, um, 
what will it become, I guess, or, you know, what, what's its potential. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to say there's, there's really, I try not to make predictions much more than one or two years in advance, just because, um, it feels like, you know, you have to rely on many assumptions in order to, to make predictions. Of course, there's a lot of people that are saying that we're going to reach human level intelligence by this, this, and that year. And, yeah, and then um, there's super intelligence because yeah. machines start to teach each other and learn, yeah. you know, and, so, and there's yeah. definitely a place for that. You know, you have Nick Bostrom mm. or someone like that who's who's super obsessed with super intelligence, and there's definitely mm. a, a place yeah. for that because may, maybe it's plausible that something like that happens. Although I'm often kind of, I wish that people kind of paid more attention to the next five years. Let's say just because. There's already mm. a lot of areas that, that machine learning is being used um, where most people, I really mean like a plurality of people, don't um, would find unintuitive to, um, uh, to believe that, th that certain kinds of inference are possible using machine learning. And so it's being used to, machine learning effectively now is being used to, um, to give content to people online. So like most social media, And a lot of news mm -hmm. and things like that is being um, sorted and delivered with machine learning algorithms. And that's a big change from how it was, I think, just three years ago. And mm -hmm. the, we're still struggling to really understand what the, what the, you know, the implications of that are. Yeah, and it can have a big impact uh, on public opinion, right? It has like, huge impact on public opinion, surface. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, right. so, so I try to focus more on, on those because they feel a lot more tractable, you know, like that they, that they feel very close. Mm -hmm. Um, because by the time you get to super intelligence, 10 or 20 years or 50 years from now, even if honestly, it's always 20 years ahead. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's, yeah. Of years, honestly. <laughs> it's always, always 20 years. That's a really good trick. Like in 30 years, your book will never age if you just use relative, um, terms like that. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I, I'm of course super interested in also, um, but but I also know that a lot of the, the the landscape will change so much between now and then that even if we do achieve super intelligence, it may not look like the super intelligence we conceive of now. Um, and I like to be concerned myself with more realistic things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, we have enough like interesting actual problems to solve right now. I think so. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. totally on the same page there. Wonderful. So, just to close off, where can people see you in the next few weeks and months? Uh, do you have any like talks and workshops mm -hmm. coming up, or any chances to meet you um, or learn from you? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, so my schedule, uh, I keep a, a schedule up on my website. So, if you go to my website and you go to click on about or CV. Mm -hmm. um, I log all of my, my talks and, and, uh, workshops. And so you can see, like, I have a few coming up. Um, I'll be doing, um, well, not, not all of them are public events. Like I'll be at Carnegie Mellon for a week. Um, and I'll be at ITP and SFPC, but there's also a few talks that, and some that have to still be announced. Um, but, but I'm always just kind of sharing stuff on, um, I share most of my work on Twitter as I go. And so that's also where I usually announce new things, um, new, uh, new materials online. You know, if you're, you're not always in the same city as me, so, um, probably <laughs> the, the easiest place to just go to my, my website or my Twitter. And that's where you'll get a good sense of, um, the projects. 
And then, um, as we already mentioned, ML4A, that's also a good place if you're interested in getting started with the materials. Um, you can find it over there. Wonderful. Perfect. Thanks for sharing all this stuff from this exciting world of machine learning. <laughs> yeah, and no problem. Yeah, it will be exciting to follow this year as well, what's what's going on and, and what people can come up with with these crazy machines. <laughs> yeah, I'll so. be following closely myself. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Gene. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey folks, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is now completely crowdfunded. So you can support us by going on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash data stories. And if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. And here's also some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're, of course, on Twitter at twitter.com slash data stories. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash data stories podcast, all in one word. And we also have a Slack channel uh, where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, you can go to our homepage, datastory.es, and there is a button at the bottom of the page. And we also have an email newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish an episode, you can go to our homepage, datastory.es, and look for the link you find at the bottom in the footer. So one last thing we want to tell you is that we love to get in touch with our listeners, especially if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or amazing people you want us to invite or even projects you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And don't hesitate to get in touch with us. It's always a great thing for to hear from you. So see you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories.